What is on my heart this afternoon? You know, yesterday, I wasn't actually expecting to speak. I got a text message at around 1 or 2 yesterday afternoon informing me that uh, Pastor Rob was sick. And, um, and so I admit I was scrambling a little bit. I was, okay, Lord, what do you want me to share? And uh, I started thinking about what we're reading through as a church in the book of Ephesians, and certainly that has been in my heart. I love the book of Ephesians. There's so much good stuff in Ephesians. I've been doing a lot of counseling lately with uh, pre-marriage counseling with couples, including my own son. He's getting, I have two sons that are getting married here shortly, one in November, one in February, and miracle of miracles, he asked me and my wife to counsel him. And I was like, really? In spite of all that we've done to you, you want me to counsel you? Okay. <laughs> so praise the Lord that he somehow uses imperfect parents, imperfect fathers to uh, give counsel to sons. And so anyway, but him, along with several other young couples um, that we are doing counseling with, have brought me to this passage in Ephesians a number of times, the, the passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, that deals with um, marriage. And as I've been doing that, the Lord has really given me, I mean, th- these are familiar passages, familiar verses, but the Lord has kind of given me fresh eyes, not only for the scriptures, but for understanding where many of our young people are today in relation to the truths of the scripture. Now, we know that Eric Metaxas was here last week, and his exhortation was for us as a church to wake up, and just the warning that, of what will happen if we don't wake up, you know, and that's a big part of the reason why we as a church want to be in prayer, to bathe everything that goes on in relation to local and national elections in, in prayer. But I have to admit, speaking after Eric Metaxas is, is a little, you know, it's <laughs> he's got big shoes to fill. But, you know, it's kind of like speaking after the President of the United States. Well, maybe that's not so hard these days, right? <laughs> after all, made in America is two, I mean, three important words, right? So <laughs> but we have in our nation a spiritual collapse that has resulted in a moral collapse and will ultimately, I believe, believe, lead to a physical collapse unless God intervenes. And that's the part that we as Christians play, and that's what we, the part that we as churches need to play in. What do we as a church do? What do we as individuals do? And you know, we're reminded, especially being in this church, of the many things that we can do and even the things that we must do. And as I was thinking about what God would, what the Lord would have me share and what was on my heart, I realized, and I want to put forward to you today, that part of what we do, a very important part, is related to marriage. Having a good and godly marriage and modeling and teaching and mentoring godly marriages to our young people, it is and it remains one of the most important things that we as Christian people can continue to do to save our nation. And so today, we're going to look at one of the most important passages of Scripture that relates to one of the most important aspects of our Christian life, and that is marriage. Taking an old look at marriage. Why old? I ran that title by my wife, and she was not a fan. She said, that seems kind of old. (laughs) But there's a reason. In Jeremiah Chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Thus says the Lord, 
Stand in the way and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You know, we live in a day and age where if something is old, it's often relegated to being outdated and irrelevant. Sometimes we, as older people, feel that way about ourselves. I remember as a kid, growing up as a missionary kid on the mission field, and and we lived in the Central African Republic, which was a long ways from anywhere. But we would go, my parents would go out for four years at a time, and we would come back wearing clothes that were four years outdated. And we definitely looked like the typical missionary family. I remember one time coming back in the late 70s, and we were wearing, and I remember this because I was in school, and I got just uh, abused for it, but I was wearing the big bell-bottom pants and those 70 kind of pants, and, and the style had changed, and now they were wearing uh, something like skinny jeans or something. And we were the source of much ridicule in the school, all three of us kids. You know, there's certain things that need to be refreshed. I know my body is one of them. Dealing with my eye, dealing with my knees, dealing with my elbow. Certainly we, we are thankful for those things in, of technology that can refresh our bodies, but there's other things that get better with age. And you know what? The truths of the Bible and the truths related to marriage are those things that don't need to be refreshed. They are truly those things that only get better as time goes on. And all of our attempts to refine and redefine and repurpose and remake marriage have only made things worse. And the farther we get from the old path, as Jeremiah says in chapter 6 there, that good way, the farther we get from that old path in regards to marriage, the greater the shambles we seem to have made of things. I remember sharing maybe a couple months ago, but in fourth grade, that was one of the years that I was here, and this was in the late 70s, And uh, I remember in my class, there was one young boy who during the course of the year, his parents got a divorce. And I remember it being a big deal because that wasn't typical. And that was only, what, 40 years ago. And now we look at our society and whether you look at the church and people in the church are people outside the church. And we have basically the same, same statistic. A massive number of people. Huge percentage of people. And it doesn't really matter whether you're a Christian or not. And I don't say that to point a finger at anyone or to make anyone feel judged. I'm just pointing it to say, or pointing it out to say that there's a problem. And somehow the church is not helping. (laughs) Somehow we're not addressing the issue. And so today, for the benefit of those of us who are married and for the benefit of those who maybe have made a mistake and have regrets in regards to marriage, and for the benefit of those who are currently modeling and trying to teach and mentor young people in marriage, For those of you who are young and you're looking forward to marriage, we're going to look at the old path, the timeless timeless truths of marriage. And you know what? Yes, those truths are as old as the hills because that is when they were put in place. And we're going to look at what God the Father and what Jesus God's Son And what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul have to say about marriage. 
We're going to look at the why and the how and the what of marriage. And we're going to go someplace where a lot of times pastors don't want to go. We're going to go, we're going to bring that word out of the closet. A word that society has decided is a no-go zone. A word that maybe is on par with white ultra-mega-nationalism. <laughs> it's a word a ch- the church avoids. It's a word that many women hate. It's a word that men fear. And we're going to confront that word, and we're going to understand it, and we're going to understand and find out why it is necessary, and, is, and it is squarely in the middle of every successful godly marriage. And it's in the middle of our relationship with the Lord, and that word is submission. Turn in your Bible to Ephesians 5. It'll be up on the screen. And we'll begin in verse 18. It says, sorry, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also is Christ the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, and that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The first thing that we're going to look at today is, is the why. The why of marriage. Why do we marry? Why not just shack up together as a man and a woman or as, for that matter, any two people in this day and age, for as long as it's convenient, as long as it's beneficial, as long as it's pleasurable, and always just have that back door open for when things get tough. You know, I was not old enough to witness the glory days of the American muscle car. But I do remember the 70s, when any car that was made in America was suspect. Remember the Pacer and the Pinto. (laughs) There were many others. The cars made in the 70s, made in America, did not have a good reputation. In the same way, marriage maybe had its glory days in America, but in recent times, it's gotten a bad image. And many young people are looking at our marriages, they're looking at the rates of divorce, they're looking at their parents who have gotten divorced, they're seeing the chaos, they're seeing the heartache, they're seeing the hurt, and they've decided to skip out. They've decided to put off. They've decided that marriage is not something they want to enter into 
And they've decided that just living together is just as good an option. After all, look what's going on today. And I have to say in my, in my opportunities at, at counseling young people, and, and this has been opening my eyes, there are many who truly do fear stepping into marriage. What if it doesn't work? You know, made in America is a three-word mantra that when I'm making a purchase, I'm happy and even make an effort to support because I'm, I'm patriotic. And while there are many quote-unquote smart people in our world, in our nation, that think marriage was made in America, it was not. Marriage was and is made in heaven. Amen? In Genesis chapter 2, most likely Adam would be writing these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these words would be gathered together eventually by Moses, who would eventually collate them and put them together by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, what we have in Genesis chapter 2 are the very origins of creation. And we know that in Genesis 1 and 2, we read of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the firmament, the earth, the mountains, eventually man. And God saw all that, that it was good. Indeed, it was very good. There was only one thing that God said in all of that was not good, and that's when he saw that man was alone. Let's pick up in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, because she was taken out of a man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The point I want us to dwell on here is that marriage was not a human construct. When God created man, actually when he created, when he saw Adam, he saw that it was not good that he should be alone. And so God made Eve. And with Eve, part and parcel of that was he created the relationship. He created marriage. And marriage was the best and in God's eyes, the only way in which a man and woman should live together, to work, to procreate, to raise a family, to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And through that, through that relationship unique, which God created, many benefits would come as those individuals live their life in that relationship that God ordained. God didn't create us and then give us a multiple choice about how we should live together. He was very specific. One man, one woman, a commitment for life. That's what it says here in Genesis. Before we go on, Again, just having had opportunity to speak to young people and understanding their fear of stepping into marriage because of the examples they see ahead of them, whether it's their parents or the church at large. But I would just exhort you as, as young people, don't let the bad examples of people that have gone before you be your excuse for not stepping into what God has commanded as the right way to live. 
Marriage is the way God intended a man and a woman to live together. And even though it might be convenient to just shack up, to live together, to put off that commitment, or to say, oh, we'll get married eventually, you're still not living in a way that God would honor. And you might think, because of lack of teaching, because of lack of emphasis from the church, oh, it's not a big deal. Everyone does it. That's, that's certainly the case. It's still not right. And if you're here at church, and you truly do want God's hand of blessing to be upon you, ask yourself, how can God's hand of blessing be upon you when you're living in a way, in one of the most important relations in your, relationships in your life, in a way that's not honoring the Lord? And I would encourage you, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and, and say, Lord, I, I want to straighten that out. And if you're here and you're living with someone, calling yourself married but you're not, I would encourage you to make that relationship right. I remember when, I was, when my wife and I were missionaries in Uganda and we had planted a church and I had raised up a bunch of young men not all young, but, and these men were serving in the church, and I just assumed that they were all married because they said they were. Well, as time went on, and we started teaching through some passages on what marriage was, they began to understand, and people around began to understand that they weren't really married. They were just kind of living together, and it was culturally acceptable. And as I came to realize it, that I had pastors on my staff who were calling themselves married, but they weren't, they were just conveniently living together, it brought some conviction. And so we went through this process of, we called it, you know, getting our house in order, and, and we put out an invitation for anyone who was in that situation to be part of what we call the mass wedding. And it was amazing how many people came forward and participated in counseling and coming to understand what marriage is and, and wanting to do it God's way. And I remember that day, it was, uh, I think, in 2014 in October, we must have had 15 or so people, couples, some of them who'd been together for 20 years, say, I want to honor God by putting this relationship right. I want to marry I want to make a commitment. And it was a beautiful thing. And I truly can say that as they did that, as they took that step of putting their house in order, they were removing hindrances that might have prevented God's hand of blessing from being upon them. And if that's your case, because I know that it's common these days for many reasons, as you are seeking the Lord and wanting to honor him in your life, I, I, I just pray that you would consider that. That's part of why we should be married, because it's God's institution, and God created it, and God knows the best way that we should live together, and as we are obedient to do so, we are, we're bringing honor to him. But you might still protest, and you might look at that Old Testament passage, and you might say, well, that's an old passage from the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That seems kind of archaic. Is it really relevant to me today? Well, I would just ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 19, because Jesus had something to say about those words. In Matthew 19, verse 3, it says the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus is quoting verbatim what Adam probably penned, what Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, collated. But then Jesus goes on and he says, So then, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined, let no man separate. 
So what Moses penned, Jesus quotes. And so if you want to disregard that Old Testament teaching from Genesis 2, then necessarily you'll have to disregard Jesus himself because Jesus saw it as a truth. Amen? And Jesus adds to it. He expounds on it. And he says, what God has joined, let no man separate. In other words, here we hear from Jesus himself his heart towards marriage and his heart towards divorce. And again, before I go on, I've mentioned how divorce has become so prevalent. And as we'll see, it has such a a massive knock-on effect that's destructive in our society. And I'm not here by any means to point fingers at anyone who has. I know personally that if it wasn't for God and my awesome wife, I would probably be in the same position because I know who I am. I know what a hard person I am to live with. But somehow, by the grace of God, we've been married 32 years, when my wife and I entered into marriage, we declared that the D word was not going to be spoken, that that would never be an option for us, and that somehow, if we got into a difficulty, we were always going to bring God into the situation, and God would bring us through. And that has been the case. And I can tell you that there have been many times... I won't say many, but there's been a few times in our marriage where initially I have felt like, I don't know how we're going to go forward. It just felt like my wife and I were at such an impasse that I don't, how is this going to get resolved? But as we realized there's no back door, divorce isn't an option, and we realized we don't want to be miserable for the rest of our life, (laughs) let's go to the Lord. And so as we sought the Lord and were willing to be humble and were willing to repent and were willing to say the words, I'm sorry, there's definite power in those words, you guys, I am sorry. It's amazing how walls that seemed so huge and impregnable began to come down. And where there was anger, where there was bitterness, where there was animosity, God miraculously changed and put in our hearts understanding and compassion and love and forgiveness. And I say all that because I know probably in this room there's a few people who are here and you might be in that same place. And you think there's no way forward for me at this point in my relationship. Divorce is the only option. And I would just remind you, number one, God's heart is not that way. God does not love or like divorce. He hates divorce. And certainly there are biblical grounds, don't get me wrong, but that is the exception and not the rule. And I would just implore you, there is hope. If you bring God into the equation, with God nothing is impossible. God can change your heart. God can change your spouse's heart. It does take humility. It does take the willingness to forgive. It does take the willingness to ask forgiveness, to repent. But God can do that. And I would just encourage you, if you're here today and that's your situation, seek out someone who can help you. Seek out a pastor. Seek out a counselor. Seek out a friend who you can share this with and can pray with. And bring God into that equation. Amen? So we see that what Moses penned, Jesus quoted, but then in Ephesians chapter 5, which we read, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, expanded on. And we, when we read that, it says there, verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So here's the Apostle Paul, again, quoting verbatim, the passage from Genesis chapter 2, repeating what Jesus had already said. But he also explains this. And he says, this is a great mystery I speak concerning Christ and the church. And this is important 
Because, you know, for so many people, marriage is like a transaction, a business transaction. You give something and you get something in return. It's like an investment. As long as it's yielding a return, I'm in. But the moment the returns cease, I'm out. That's the way a lot of people treat marriage. It's like a, something that's expendable. But marriage is so much more than just about me. It's so much more than just about you and your wife or you and your husband. Paul explains that here. He says, this is a great mystery. I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. There is something about marriage that is very profound, that is much bigger than my, myself. And we'll see that later, but we, for now, we come to understand that marriage is foundational in God's plan. God's plan for humankind. And you know what? Most of us here are going to enter into marriage at some point or another. And we need to understand the implications that godly marriages can have and will have in furthering God's plan in the world. I want to just share a brief video that kind of speaks to that. Married couples exert great power. A holy, healed, healthy, happy marriage arguably may be the most powerful relationship on the planet. Two individuals coming together with, with love, in, with mutual respect, with honor, living a, a life lined up with scripture. That relationship right there is the most catalytic, transformative, and powerful relationship in any community, in any city, in any state, in any region. It, it is the facilitative womb for everything good that takes place in society. From there, we raise healthy kids. If we raise healthy kids, we're gonna have healthy communities. If we have healthy communities, we're gonna have healthy cities. If we have healthy cities, we'll have healthy states, healthy regions, and a healthy nation. We, we can trace back all of the social ills that we see in our society to the lack of healthy marriages. Married couples. Marriage is the facilitative womb for everything good. What a profound statement. And we can trace back so many of societal ills to bad marriages. That's, that's profound. And that's the why. The why of marriage is because, number one, God created it. Number two, he said it's the best way that a man and woman should live together. And number three, it has profound implications for what God wants to do through us in the world in which we live in. That's the why. Now to the how. How do we successfully love for a lifetime? That's kind of the cliche, love for a lifetime, but how do we do that? And this is the part where I may need to put a face mask on because of the tomatoes that will come flying at me. <laughs> Certainly as we enter into this topic, we tend to get nervous. But there are three words, I call them the three S words of our Christian faith. Service, sacrifice, and submission. And these are foundational. They're an integral part of our successful life as a Christian, as well as our successful godly marriage. Now, I think historically, these ideas were kind of inculcated in our society. I remember as a kid, from when I was as little, I always addressed my elders as sir or ma'am, and I do that to this day. It's just bred into me, and I know many of you do too. But I know that today, a young child can come up to me and say, hey, Craig, how's it going? <laughs> and it always takes me back a little bit, right? Not that it makes me angry. I just, wow, they don't teach kids that respect for elders like they used to. And there's something lost as a result, okay? When I was a kid, I was always told, open the door for a woman. Open the car door. Open the, oh, that's part of the, chivalry. That's part of being a gentleman. 
That's not taught anymore. In fact, that's almost seen as sexist, right? Why are you opening the door for me? <laughs> but that's all part of what we grew up with, and that's what's being lost. That's not to say it's not important. These three words are important. And, and to show that, there are only two times in Scripture that Jesus specifically says he is leaving an example for us to follow. Now, we know that his whole life was an example. But specifically two times in Scripture, it says he leaves an example for us to follow. The first is in John chapter 13. Now, we know that passage. That's the passage that Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And I'll begin reading in verse 4. And Jesus rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, and he took a towel and he girded himself. And after that, he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And we know that Peter resisted and argued, but at the end of it all, verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down, he said, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. So here specifically, we have this image of Jesus, who was the rabbi, who was the leader, taking off those garments and putting on the garments of a slave and doing the ignominious job of washing his disciples' feet. Have you ever washed someone's feet? It's humbling. It's humbling for the person who's being washed, but it's also humbling for the person who's washing. And Jesus, in this passage, he says, I have given you an example that you should follow in of service. In other words, we should be willing to lay aside our garments of whatever it is we think we are or deserve and stoop down to the lowest of the low and to serve our brethren. The Bible says it's an example that Jesus told us to walk in. It should be part of our MO as Christians. The second time in Scripture it says Jesus specifically gives us an example is in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you will take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And so while John speaks to us of the example we are to follow in serving, First Peter speaks to us of the example we are to, to follow in suffering, in laying aside our rights, and for his sake, suffering, that his glory might be seen. The third word, submit, the third S word, submit, is an exhortation to us that is modeled by Christ himself. It is not something that God tells us to do that he also hasn't modeled within himself. When you look at the Trinity, you see God the Father, you see God the Son, and you see God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is equal to God the Son, is equal to God the Holy Spirit. Equality in being. But we definitely know that there is a hierarchy in there. There's a hierarchy in role. We never see Jesus commanding the Father. Jesus always submits to the Father. We never see the Holy Spirit commanding Jesus or the Father. The Holy Spirit is always submitting 
to Jesus and the Father. And so we see this equality, but we see this hierarchy. And this is worked out for us or shown for us in the book of 1 Peter. Again, sorry, not Peter, Philippians chapter 2, where he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each one esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then it goes on to say that Jesus himself did this. He says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And by being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so this, this hierarchy in role, this, this uh, sorry, this hierarchy in, in, in role, but the equality in being that we see in God, we see this worked out in Jesus as he left his glory, his position, his rights, and he came down not to rule over us, but actually to come underneath us. And submitting to the will of the Father, he sacrificed and he served us to bring us up into the presence of God. Jesus submitted to the Father. So let's tackle this word, submission, because submission is at the core of every successful marriage. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And we begin in verse 21. Paul says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There is an attitude of submission that all of us as Christians need to have one towards another. As Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, we shouldn't look at each other as better than them, but we should look at each other as equals, as children of God. And Paul exhorts us, he says, submit to one another as unto the Lord in the fear of God. In other words, as we are looking at each other as brethren, out of love and admonition and out of obedience to God, we are allowing ourselves to come underneath our brothers and sisters and push them up into the presence of God, to, to push them up into more of an understanding of God. And that's something that all of us should be doing as Christians for each other. And then he goes into, and so that's on a broad level that's within the church. And then he speaks to the wives. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands. So here we get into the topic that brings people into nervousness. <laughs> wives, submit to your own husbands. But there are some truths here that we should understand. God, while we see this pattern of hierarchy and role worked out in the Trinity. We see it in the church. Christ is the head. The church is the body. That same pattern is now brought into the family. And even as Christ is head of the church, God has appointed a captain in the family, and that's the man, the husband. For you as husbands, God has appointed you. Your role is to be the leader in the family. You're to be the leader of your wife. Now, that's not to say your wife isn't capable. I know many families in which the wife may be far more capable. But the point is that we don't have the ability to decide, well, in my family, the wife is going to be the captain. That might be how you run your family, but God is still going to look at you as the husband, and he's going to hold you responsible for being the spiritual leader in the family. 
and that is tied to something that is immovable. Look at, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Christ is head of the church. That's an immovable truth. And in the same way, you as men, if you're married, God is looking at you to be the leader in your home, to be the head in your home. And he's holding you responsible to, to fulfill that role. And you as wives, you are not... So God is asking you to come voluntarily, come down underneath your husband and allow him to be the leader, not because he deserves it, not necessarily because he is respectable, although I pray that he is and he will be become that leader, but because you love the Lord. He says, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And so what God is asking you as wives to do out of your love and obedience to the Lord is to voluntarily come down underneath your husband and allow him to be the leader in the home. Amen? Now, that's not always easy to do. I know. But God is asking you women to take that step of faith. He's saying, trust me. Come underneath your husband and trust that I will do that work in your husband even though you might feel like you can do a better job and might very well be more capable to do the job, I'm still asking you to voluntarily come underneath your husband. And by that very act, you are allowing him to fulfill his role as a man and as a husband. Then he speaks to the husbands. And he says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wife, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, and that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And it goes on. But in that passage, the word love is mentioned six times. Husbands, love your wife. Now that we as husbands, we might say, well, I love my wife. But you guys, we don't have the option to decide what kind of love that is. All of us as husbands probably have had or have kind of debased minds, and our version of love can be debased. <laughs> And it's easy to love in that way. But God has defined the love. It's agape love. Agape love is that love which gives without expecting in return. And not only has he defined it, he's given us the example as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Christ loved the church before the church did anything good. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we did anything good, before we were respectable in any way, while we were still in our mire and filth of sin, Jesus left his exalted position and he came down underneath us, providing that opportunity for salvation and lifted us back up into the presence of God. That's the love that Christ had for us. And that's the standard of love that God expects us as husbands to have for our wives. We don't have the opportunity to just say, well, I love my wife and make our own definition. That is the definition. And here's the beauty of, of what's going on here. The beauty in submission. Because we see that on a general level, we have Christians, brothers and sisters, we're all looking at each other, not on the basis of gender, not on the basis of race, not on the basis of intellect or education or age. We're looking at each other as God's children. And we have this willingness out of our love for God to come underneath each other and to, in that, lift each other up towards God. That's on a general level. But then we step down into 
to marriage. And I want you to turn quickly to Genesis chapter 2, because this is just, this is beautiful. When you go to Genesis 2 verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. There's two words in there that are important. Helper and comparable to. That word helper, it's the Hebrew word ezer. And actually it simply means a helpmate. Someone who can come along and help you in the task help you accomplish in the task that God has called you to do. And so for Adam, God was bringing alongside someone who could help him. But then it goes on to say comparable to. And that also is an interesting word because it's not like God just made a duplicate of Adam to say, okay, here's a clone of you to help you in your task. No, that word comparable to can have the meaning of opposite to. And the idea is, is that Adam was created, and there was some incompleteness. And God created Eve to come in and to bring completeness to who Adam was. And that the two of them together are a complete unit, and together they can accomplish all that God has called them to. to. And so as, as we come back to Ephesians here, and looking at just this whole idea of submission, and turning it around from being something that we're, we're nervous about talking to realizing this is actually beautiful. What's happening is, is that as we are submitting to each other on a general level, looking at each other as more important than ourselves, this attitude of others before ourself, th- then down into the family unit, wives, God is calling you to come voluntarily underneath your husband and be his helpmate, to be that completer and by doing so, you are an instrument. You're, you're an instrument that God is using to help your husband become all that God has called him to be. You're call, you're, God is using you to help him be the leader, that spiritual leader that God has called him to be. But it doesn't end there. This idea of submission is not just for the wife. Then God calls the husband. Husbands, love your wife. And so after the wife submits to the husband, he says, now, husbands, I want you to sacrifice, which requires submission for your wife. I want you to think of her better than yourself. I want you to come underneath her, and I want you to lift her up and be that helpmate for her to help her become all that God has called her to be, to be the woman that God has called her to be. And it's, so it's this mutual attitude of love and submission that God modeled for us first, because that's what Jesus did. He created us. He is over us. But what did he do? He came down underneath us, and he has lifted us up into that position of being God's children. And that's what God wants us to do for each other. And that's the beauty that happens in marriage. And for those of you who are married, that's how God wants to use for you men. That's how God wants to use your wife in your life. That as you embrace your role as being the spiritual leader, because that's what God has called you to be, God is going to use your wife to come underneath you and help you fulfill that role. And husbands as you and his wives, as you embrace your role, God is going to use your husband to come underneath you and help you become the woman and the wife that God wants you to be. And within that is this whole idea of helpmate and completer. And you become this unit that is this powerful force of change, not only in your family, but in society and in our nation. So that is the how. And I believe that it's only when we embrace this idea of submission in our marriages that we will experience and see the beauty and the blessing that God has for us when we do them. And so I would just exhort you as men. God has given you a role. God has called you to be the leader in your family. And primarily, that role is a spiritual role. God has called you as men to be the spiritual leader, to be the priest. He's called us as men to lead our families in spiritual matters. Not just to 
think, oh, I'm the breadwinner and that's my, my job. No. God has called us as men to be the spiritual leader, to be the priest. And he's going to hold us accountable for that one day. And God has called us to embrace it, not be embarrassed by it, not be shamed by it, but to embrace it. And for you as women, he's, he's called you to voluntarily come underneath your husband and be that instrument that God uses to raise him up, even as God is using your husband to come underneath you and raise you up. Amen? That's the how. Lastly, we come to the what. What is the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of marriage? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And it speaks of all the benefits that are there for us in marriage. Companionship, strength, efficiency, encouragement. We know that there's pleasure in the gift of sex that comes in the bounds of marriage. We know that procreation and being fruitful and multiplying is a part of what God intended for marriage. We come to see that when husbands and wives are embracing their roles, they're fulfilling that idea of becoming a helpmate, and each of you is helping your husband or wife become who God wants you to be. So there are benefits to enjoy and work to be done, but there are also lessons to learn. You know, I know that before I was married, I was the world's expert on being a husband and being a father. (laughs) I remember, seriously, I remember looking at married couples and just having this critical spirit in my, like, you guys, you're just doing it all wrong. Until I got married and until I had kids. And then I realized what a selfish person I was. But you know what? God has used marriage, and he uses marriage in all of our lives, to teach us valuable lessons that we wouldn't learn in any other way. He teaches us servanthood. He teaches us what it is to sacrifice. He teaches us what it is to submit. He teaches us love. All of these are lessons that we only learn when we are in the bounds of marriage. So there are many, and they're part of our sanctification. But lastly, there is an example to illustrate. And I think this to me is one of the most profound things. Paul says it here. He says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. And remember we talked about how there is something so much bigger in marriage than just us. And when we look here at what Paul says, this is a great mystery, I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. The profound truth to me is that somehow in my relationship with my wife, God wants to illustrate love. And he wants to illustrate his love for mankind. Somehow he wants to use Lauren and I in our marriage relationship to be a testimony, to be an illustration, to be a, an arrow which points to God and helps people to understand there's a God out there that loves them. I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. In other words, as God is looking at, or as people are looking at your marriage, are they understanding God better? Are they understanding the nature of God better? Are they understanding the love of God better? That's sobering. Because I know that there have been many times in our marriage when that hasn't been the case. And maybe you can say the same thing in yours, but I'm thankful I'm thankful that there's grace. I'm thankful that God forgives. I'm thankful that God gives us second chances. Let's conclude. What is the conclusion of this matter? Well, the first thing is is that marriage is God's construct, not ours. Marriage was not made in America. It was made in heaven. 
And we shouldn't be looking for new instructions. We should stick with the old instructions. They're the best. We need to understand that there are enormous implications of a godly, Christ-centered marriage. And that God can use our marriages in very profound ways, far beyond than just fulfilling our personal wants and needs. We need to embrace our God-given roles, the roles that God has given to you as a husband, the roles that God has given to you as a wife, the roles that God has given to you as a parent. Let's not let culture come in and shame us into thinking that what's in Scripture, what God said and has repeated is archaic and somehow not applicable to our society today. Let's embrace our roles as husbands. Let's embrace our role as being the priest in the home. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us and is holding us responsible for leading our family in spiritual matters. As husbands, let's embrace that role. Let's embrace the role that we have as husbands to love our wife, to, to come underneath our wives and help them, lift them up, to help them become the women that God has intended them to be. That's our role. As women, embrace your role. You are capable, equal in every way. But God has asked you to come step down underneath your husband and voluntarily, out of respect and love for God, submit to his leadership. And in doing so, help him become the man that God has intended him to be. I would ask you also to remember that the greatest work that was ever accomplished wasn't, didn't happen in a battle. It happened when Jesus went to the cross. It happened when Jesus saved mankind. And it was accomplished as Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. He sacrificed his position and he served us, his creation, by dying for us. There's power in those three words. Sacrifice, service, and submission. And lastly, ask yourself the question, if God can do that through Jesus, what can Jesus accomplish through me in my marriage as I do the same? Amen? So we're going to pray, and the worship team will come up. And Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. And Lord, as we've looked at this whole topic of marriage, Lord, I, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, have spoken to us. I pray that you've spoken to us as men. Lord, that we would be men who would embrace our role, the God-given role that you have given us to love our wives and to be the spiritual leaders in the home, and to lead our homes in a godly and righteous way. I pray for the wives. I pray that you would give them the grace to love and respect their husbands, and out of love for you, come underneath their husbands, and help them to become the men that you have called them to be. Lord, I pray for the couples in this room, or maybe it's a single man or a single woman who are on the verge of maybe calling it quits. They've lost hope in their relationship. They've lost hope in their marriage. And Lord, I pray that in some way you've spoken to them that there is hope. Lord, that with you there is always a possibility. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd give them the grace to reach out to someone pray for them, to realize that, God, you can intervene, you can change things around. And I pray that you would. I pray that you would bring healing where there has been hurt. I pray that you would bring grace and understanding and love where there has been anger and bitterness, Heavenly Father. And Lord, for the young people here, 
who are confused and disillusioned with this whole topic of marriage and have decided to do it their own way, Lord, I pray that they would purpose in their heart to say, Lord, I want to do it your way. And that wherever they are now, whatever sort of relationship they're, they're in, that they would say, Lord, I want to make my life right before you. And you would give them the grace and the courage to stand against the tide of culture and to say, I'm going back to the old way. I'm going to do it right. And there might be difficulties in that, but I pray that you'd give them the courage to do it, Lord. It might mean separating. It might mean moving out of the home for a while until things are settled or until there's actually a marriage that's in place. Lord, I pray that you'd give them the ability and the grace to do that. Lord, all of this needs you. And I pray that you'd give us the ability and the grace to do it. And so, Lord, continue to speak to us about all these things. Impress the truths upon our hearts in Jesus' name. 